few of you might have looked at that video and thought, wait a minute, it's the new year. We're supposed to be done with the minor prophets. Uh, perhaps you recall uh, at the end, well, the beginning of December, first week of December, we were in Malachi. Someone reminded me he's the only Italian prophet, Malachi, um, and realized there was no way to adequately handle that book in one sermon. And so we have two more sermons on Malachi. Then the last of January, Pastor Danny will be sharing uh, from what the Lord lays on his heart. Then the beginning of February, we have Missions Festival. More information is coming out about that. Our focus will be Cary Alliance Church on Mission. So please set aside February 4th through 11th services on Sunday, Monday, Wednesday, and then the Saturday and Sunday. And then, middle of February, uh, by God's grace, we will pick up with a series on the book of Ephesians. Just a quick reminder about Malachi. The theme of this book is honor God, because it was a people that was dishonoring the Lord. And at the root of dishonoring the Lord was believing lies. In Malachi chapter 1, they were believing the lie that the Lord did not truly love them and therefore were responding to the Lord in unloving ways in their own life and in particular in worship. And then this theme of honoring the Lord and not believing the lies continues through the book. And this morning we hit the so very significant theme of honoring God in marriage. This is a powerful passage. And one of the things that hit me in preparing to talk from Malachi chapter 2 is how very personal this passage can be, and for many, how very painful. Who does not go to a wedding day with white lace and promises and very high hopes. And then how many families have been touched as pain has entered into a marriage relationship and then as it has moved on to destruction and to divorce. Sometimes it's easy to identify, well, it's that person's fault or it's the other person's fault. We think it can be easy to identify, but, but so very often that history is a history of very deep pain, of who did what and when, of building resentment that eventually leads to a loss of love, a marriage that ends lots of guilt, lots of questions. This is something that has touched many of us, and we need to recognize this morning that for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, this is a no-condemnation zone. Please hear it. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so while we talk and try and paint an, an image of the glories of marriage and God's intention in it, let us also remember compassion and redemption. I say this 
somewhat personally as well. Uh, many of you know that my mother died when I was a child, but probably most of you don't know that before I was even born, this was her story. Uh, I was born into a blended family as my mother had been married and then went through the pain of, of dissolution, of abandonment, and of divorce. And then when my dad married her, she brought two boys into that family, and then I came along. And our family has seen the consequences of that pain for these years. And again, so many of us have seen those, those consequences, but we have also seen glorious and beautiful redemption. So we are reading Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 through 16, the passage that is famous for saying God hates divorce and that has been used to pound people over the head. Uh, but that is not what this passage is about. This passage is about a marriage that honors God as we go into it with the intention of bringing him glory, as we stick with it by his grace, and as we allow him to redeem the mess that we make of our lives sometime, sometimes. So let's read Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. Do we not all have one Father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors by being faith, unfaithful to one another? Judah has been unfaithful. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying women who worship a foreign god. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord remove him from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings an offering to the Lord Almighty. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears, you weep and wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why? It is because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. The first thing that I realized in going through this passage is that one should go through and see how God defines marriage and how God designed marriage. And his design for marriage is beyond description. <laughs> because it touches on his nature and on his glory. It's one of the things that has been most intimidating coming into this Sunday. How to describe what is undescribable. How to give, give words to the glory of what God built in 
to marriage and his intention of it being a reflection of him. And that's the first thing, that marriage reflects, grasp this, marriage reflects God's nature and character. The passage starts, verse 10, with this phrase, do we not have one Father, did not one God create us? All of our understanding of marriage should be built on who God is and his intent in creation. And so, of course, we go back straight to Genesis chapter 1. Because in Genesis chapter 1, we have the scriptures open to us, the, the glories of who God is. Eternal God, who existed from eternity past, before he brought anything else into existence, already lived in perfect love and unity, shared among Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God did not need to create people in order to have fellowship. God already lived in the beauty of harmony and unity and love among Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then the three persons of the Trinity, acting once again in perfect harmony, expressed creative power and glory in bringing into existence everything that we see around us. And so, in the beginning, God, God the Father, ruling over all creation, and he spoke the word, Jesus Christ, the word through whom and by whom all things were made. And the spirit hovering over the deep, the agent of creation bringing about God's creative plan in touch with it. And through Genesis chapter 1, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit work together to bring about creation. And then we come to chapter 1, verse 27, to the pinnacle of God's creation, to the pinnacle of expression of his glory when God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God's intention in creating male and female was to be a reflection of his image, of his unity, of his love, of his glory, of the perfect harmony of that relationship, then expressed in human relationships, and then being manifested in ruling over that creation. God creating us in his image means that he built into us the intention of reflecting unity, love, harmony, perfect relations with each other, perfect relations with God, and perfect relations with the world around us as we steward his creation. That is God's intention in creating male and female and his intention in marriage, that we would reflect his nature and his character. We then see that marriage starts and grows in spiritual unity. 
In Genesis 2.24, we read specifically about the first marriage, when God brought Eve to Adam, and then God said, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united, united to his wife, and they become one flesh. God's intention is then that his unity would be seen as husband and wife are united on every level, physical, emotional, and spiritual. We are to grow together closer to him. Remember, the man and the woman walked with God in the cool of the garden. We together grow closer to him and closer in spiritual unity. And that is God's intention in creation. That takes us right back to this passage in Malachi, Malachi 2.15. Now, I need to talk for a little bit about translation in Malachi, and really general translation of Hebrew. Translation of Greek is kind of like a science. There's a lot of correspondence. There's a lot of rules of grammar that you can follow and you can come up with a fairly precise translation. Translation of Hebrew is like, is like drawing a picture or going in a spiral. You have to bring together a variety of elements and eventually come to a conclusion as to what is meant by this whole thing. And here is one of those passages where all kinds of translators come at it and they go through the spiral and they come out somewhere different. There are a lot of really different translations of Malachi chapter 2. And honestly, the NIV does a great job of capturing the intention of the passage, but the ESV does a better job of capturing the actual translation of some of these words. And so, Malachi 2.15 it's, I'm going to quote the ESV here, did not he make them one, did not God make Adam and Eve one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? When God brought them together, he infused a portion of the Spirit into that marriage. And when we are united before God and man, he, he infuses his grace into our marriage so that we grow together in spiritual unity. But we know the rest of the story. Genesis chapter 3, the fall into sin and destruction which introduced into our world every bit of sorrow and pain that we experience to this very day, including spiritual and physical death. All of the disasters that we ask the Lord about in the world around us and in our own lives came about because of the fall into sin. And on a personal level, so much destruction that enters into our lives comes about because of personal sin, choosing our way over God's way. But there's more to the story. There's redemption in the story. And so the third thing that we see about marriage is that God intends it to produce godly fruit now, in some level, we are talking about children, and this passage actually says God wants to produce godly children. We also see that 
built into Genesis chapter 1. Right after God created the male and female, he said, be fruitful and multiply and spread through the earth and steward the earth or rule over it. In other words, treat the earth as God would, like his representative here on earth. When God is talking about being fruitful and multiplying and spreading over the face of the earth, he's not just talking about having a bunch of kids and populating the earth. He is talking about multiplying his image over the face of the earth. We reflect his image. We reflect his glory. As we are fruitful and spread over the face of the earth, his image, his kingdom, his glory is spreading over the face of the earth. That is his intention But when we fell into sin, so much of what we end up spreading across the face of the earth is pain and destruction and suffering. But there's something beautiful in Genesis chapter 3 that has to do with being fruitful and multiplying and spreading God's image across the face of the earth. It's Genesis 3.15, right in the middle Of all the pain, God makes a promise. He speaks to the servant and he says, I will put enmity between you, serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He, the offspring of the woman, will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And that's the first indication of the gospel in Scripture. The offspring of the woman Jesus Christ would bring about victory over sin and Satan and death and pain and suffering and destruction. And that promise comes about through the seed. That promise comes about through the offspring. God's intention in marriage is not only that his image, that reflection of his glory be little points of light all around the earth as we lived into the intention that God has for us, but also that the good news of Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman who crushes the serpent, that that good news would spread over the face of the earth as we serve together for his glory and as we live out the gospel in our relationships. This is why Ephesians chapter 5 verse 25 is so important, is integral to every marriage. Husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Christ came into the world setting aside his glory being clothed in humble and weak flesh, walking on this earth and suffering, not claiming his rights, but laying them aside, becoming a servant for our sake, taking upon himself our burden, our sin, dying in our place, suffering instead of us, giving himself on our behalf so that we can be rescued and redeemed from that pain, from that suffering that we introduced into the world. And then he tells us that our marriage is a parable of that. As we give ourselves 
for each other, we are actually living out the gospel before people who watch. As we lay aside what we might claim as our rights, the privileges, the things we deserve, what I ought to have, what you owe me, as we put that aside and lay down our lives and serve one another, we're living out the gospel. We're spreading the image of God, the redeeming God, over the face of all of the earth. God's intention is that we reflect his nature and character, that we grow together in spiritual unity, that we produce godly fruit in the form of godly children as well as in the form of living out the gospel over the face of the earth, and then that we provide partnership and protection for each other. I just love how verse 14 brings this out. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary. Oops, that's not 14. The Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You've been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner in the marriage covenant. God intends marriage for partnership as we serve together. Another translation is companionship. It's actually the same idea that's reflected back in Genesis 2.24, leave and cleave, the bonding together of partnership that God built into marriage in Genesis chapter 2 is reflected here in Malachi chapter 2 and is to be reflected in our marriages. Bonded together, partners, companions, serving together for his glory and providing protection, which we're going to talk about a little bit more later. What I have so inadequately done is try to describe God's glorious intention. How impossible is it that we can actually reflect the character and nature of God and his love and unity and the glory of his gospel and all of these things in relationship to each other? That's what he wants us to do. And that's why Satan hates marriage. That's why he attacks it on every level. He attacks it personally in our lives. He attacks it in our culture. By the way, it's why Satan hates women because women bring about the seed. <laughs> because it's through a woman that Jesus came onto the earth and so he attacks women through marriage and through the men who are supposed to protect them and cherish them. Satan hates marriage and it calls for our greatest vigilance in guarding that trust that God has given us when we come together as husband and wife. But there are lies about marriage that the people in Malachi believed and that we believe, and these are lies that cause us to dishonor God. The first lie that we see in Malachi chapter 2 is that my choices in marriage are about me. Let's read 2.11 again. 
Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying women who worship a foreign god. All throughout Scripture, God describes the people of Israel as a separate people. It started at Sinai, even before and continues throughout the Old Testament Scriptures and then translates to us in the New Testament Scripture. A different people, a separate people. And one of the ways that our separateness is supposed to be expressed, one of the ways that holiness, holiness means separate, being set apart for a different purpose. One of the ways that separateness is expressed in the Old Testament is don't marry idolatrous peoples. And when God's bringing the people of Israel into the land, he says, don't marry the nations around you because they're going to bring their idols into your homes and into the place of worship, and you will fall into idolatry yourselves. And this is exactly what's happening here. Now, Malachi doesn't explain why it's happening, But we can understand from the context a variety of things that could be going on. And here's one of those things that could be going on, likely going on. Remember, the people of Israel are coming back from exile, and they're entering into a dangerous land. They have nothing. They have lost everything in a material sense. They have no protection. The walls have been torn down and the nations around them are hostile. And marriage allows you to build treaties with the people around you. Think about even the history of Europe and the marriages of kings and queens and princes and princesses and all the bonds between nations that were formed as some poor person had to marry somebody they didn't even know for political purposes. <laughs> we don't know the exact reasons, but for whatever reason, the people of Israel, as they come back into the land, are deciding that it is more convenient, more conducive, more pleasing to them individually for some reason to marry the nations around than to follow God's command to guard themselves from idolatry. And God says, bringing idol worship into your homes and into the sanctuary of the Lord is an abomination and it's a desecration. It profanes the covenant that we have made with the Lord. Okay, so we are past that. All kinds of marrying among the nations, which is wonderful. But the thing that we can't be past is idolatry. The thing that we can't be past is introducing into our homes and into our relationships worship of anything other than God. And that means we can't bring into the most intimate of our relationships a lack of connection on the very deepest level, and that is the spiritual level. There's a reason that the scriptures say that a believer should not marry an unbeliever. And it is because of how very difficult it is 
to connect on the deepest level with someone who doesn't share our values. And that can bring such pain. And again, that's not beyond God's grace, but it's a command that he gives. And somebody might say, doesn't God want me to be happy? Well, that's the point. Marriage is not about me being happy. Marriage is about honoring God. I was talking with someone about this passage this week. And they said a biblical understanding of the profound mystery and significance of reflecting the nature of God and his glory in marriage. A biblical understanding of the profound mystery and significance of marriage is probably foundational to many of our do's and don'ts. God doesn't give arbitrary do's and don'ts to make us unhappy. God calls us to be holy as he is holy because that is the opportunity for ultimate happiness. And so as we go into marriage, we need to understand it is not about me, it is not for my advantage, it is not about what I think is going to make me happy, it is not about what my heart is telling me to do or where it is leading me, it is about being holy as God is holy so that we can reflect his image and spread his glory over the face of the earth. And we need to extend this principle beyond the question of who we marry to the question of why we marry. Because idolatry raises its ugly head in all kinds of ways. Idolatry in the form of lifting myself and my desires above God raises its ugly head in all kinds of ways. When we enter marriage seeking self-actualization, when we enter marriage hoping that we will finally be fulfilled by someone else, when we enter marriage seeking physical satisfaction, when we enter marriage confident that we're going to be able to change the other person, we are putting ourselves in God's place, and that is idolatry. He calls us to enter this relationship with him as the center, with his will, as the focus, with his commands, as foundational in everything that we do. There's a second lie about marriage that comes out in this passage, and that is that ending marriage is about me, for my advantage, or for my pleasure. Chapter 2, verse 14. The Lord is the witness the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You've been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. The Lord is the witness of the covenant that husband and wife make. The ending of a marriage is about the Lord. It is not about us. The ending of a marriage defiles the unity of God as it is reflected in us. 
the ending of the marriage destroys a partnership that is intended for his glory and removes the protections that he built into marriage. This idea of protection is actually beautiful. I want to take a few minutes to tell a story out of Scripture that really illustrates a lot of the things that we have been talking about, but has one point in it that is just beautiful right here. It's the story of Ruth. You may be familiar with the story. It took place in the time of the judges, probably about 100 years before David became king, maybe 150. It just all depends on how long it takes people to have babies or how long between generations. Uh, But there was a famine in the land. A man named Elimelech took his wife Naomi and his two sons and went to the land of Moab in order to live out this famine. While they were there, the two sons got married to Moabite women. Then while they were there, Elimelech died and the two sons died. And so there in Moab, you have Naomi with her two daughters-in-law. They have been left without anything. Have to understand in the ancient world what it means to be in that situation. A widow with no male children, with no visible means of support, with no visible protection in a world that was so very hostile. Well, eventually Naomi hears that there's food back in Israel and she decides to go back. And she says, I am going back empty. I went full and I am going back empty. I have lost everything. But Ruth says that she's going to go with her and commits herself to going with her. And Naomi says, no, stay behind. And Ruth says, no, I'm going with you. And, and this is key, your people will be my people and your God will be my God. And so Naomi and Ruth go back to the land of Israel with Ruth committed to being a follower of the one God. Back in Israel, back in their hometown, Boaz comes into their lives. Boaz is a distant relation, and so therefore he has some measure of responsibility towards them, but it's the type of thing that some people followed through on and other people didn't follow through on. Through a series of circumstances and blessings, Naomi comes to realize that that Boaz might be the one who God has brought into their life to provide for their future. And so Ruth goes to Boaz after a hard day's work when he's still at the threshing floor and he's sleeping at his workplace. She goes in and lays down beside him and says, cover me with your garment because you are our kinsman redeemer. Cover me with your garment because you are the one that God has provided for protection for my family. That covering with a garment is symbolic of protection. That covering with a garment is symbolic of rescuing from the, um, ah, I can only think of the Russian word, uyazvimist. <laughs> Um, uh, exposure to danger, whatever, um, 
a protection from the vulnerability that she experienced in that place in life. And they marry, and God gives them a son. And by the way, that son becomes the grandfather of King David and the ancestor of Jesus, the seed who brings rescue and redemption. Do you see how so many aspects of what we're talking about in Malachi come about in that passage? This story that reflects God's faithfulness and compassion and his kindness and the fact that God is our rescue and that God is our redeemer. This story that shows that it really wasn't so much about the nation that Ruth came from, but rather about her heart that was not an idolatrous heart, but rather one that was given to serving the Lord completely. The fact that God brings not only physical seed as an offspring, but the gospel, the Redeemer, through this family and the fact that God provides protection as that garment covers that vulnerable woman. The reason I'm emphasizing that garment so much is that it comes out at the end of Malachi. Malachi 2.16, and again, now I am reading the ESV. A man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, covers his garment with violence. The garment of protection, when we are unfaithful to our covenant, becomes a garment of violence. And so that's why some people translate this passage, God hates divorce. It is contradictory to everything that he built into marriage. But the basic lesson here is that how we act towards our spouse reflects our relationship with God by honoring or dishonoring him. And ultimately, the lie that people are believing, and you see it in the beginning of chapter 3, is that God doesn't really care about this matter. And God says, oh, yes, I do, and I am coming and I will bring justice and purification among my people. So, what do we do with this? There are some questions that have to be lingering, lingering, and I want to spend a few moments on these questions. Every one of them could be a sermon. We'll skim over them and can talk about them later if you'd like. First one, so what about divorce? I mean, this is really where the rubber hits the road. When do you hang on, and when do you give up? When is it at an end? I made a promise before God and these witnesses, till death do us part. But the scriptures do provide circumstances for divorce. The root thing that we can understand here is that these are not the escape clause. These are a manifestation of brokenness and of suffering 
that sin brought into the world, that we brought into the world with sin, but they are not God's design and they are not God's plan. Nonetheless, as Jesus said, because of hardness of heart, because of the fact that we are human, because of the fact that sometimes we destroy things, there are circumstances where Scripture provides for divorce. The primary one we all know about, it's talked about in this passage, unfaithfulness, adultery. That's reflecting the end of a covenant. And in that situation, God provides for divorce. Jesus talks about it in Matthew 19. Another one Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 7, we put under the general term of abandonment. If an unbelieving spouse will not stay with a believing spouse, then God provides for divorce in that situation. And then that concept of abandonment extends to different situations. And I want to mention specifically criminal action and abuse. If divorce is violence, I believe violence is divorce. There is no excuse for abuse. It should not be part of our relationships. It is a destruction of the image of God. And so we have to acknowledge the pain of these circumstances and then ask ourselves, what about my past? Because again, this question has touched so many of us. And in regard to the question about my past and of the mess I've made from my, from my life, let's remember that Ruth is a story of redemption. We summarized in two minutes 10 years of pain, 10 years of tragedy, 10 years of loss, probably some really bad decisions that were made during that period of time. And God redeems that, not just sort of, but completely for his glory and for the salvation of the world. And at the end of Ruth, all the ladies gather around Naomi and say, God's name has been magnified in the nation through you and through Ruth and Boaz. That's the kind of redemption that God can bring. I was talking with someone before the service for whom these questions, what about my past, is a painful question. And they said, one of the things I'm doing this year is focusing on the truth and not the what-ifs and the if-onlys. That's the answer about the past. Bring it to the God who redeems, focus on the truth, and put aside the what-ifs and the if-onlys.
I switched two things here. So whoever's on the slides, go back now to what about singleness? This has been a whole sermon about marriage, and not everybody here is married. Two comments. First of all, for those who are still aiming for marriage, the word is keep God first. And don't marry for any reason other than his glory. But also let us recognize that marriage is but a reflection of Christ and the church. And honestly, sometimes it's a pretty poor reflection. There is something much greater and glorious than being married, and that is belonging to Jesus Christ. And when marriage cannot bring about complete satisfaction, Jesus can. And when marriage cannot bring about perfect redemption, Jesus can. And if marriage helps some of us in partnership to serve God for his glory, the Apostle Paul tells us that singleness is a gift to serve God for his glory. And so we trust him with that matter. And the basic principles that Jesus is going to be the center of my life, not some other person, and that I am going to be about walking with him in holiness for his glory and a reflection of who he is. As folks around me see the image of God, that's true for every single one of us no matter what our position in life is. So, let's pursue him, and that leads to the final question, and that is, what about my future? Okay, we've talked about the past. What's next for me? And I'm reminded where Paul says, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. I press on to the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. For those of us who are married, what is our future? Our future is the front lines of a battle that Satan is waging against our families. And so we must be vigilant and intentional I will confess to you my greatest failure in my marriage is passivity. Just kind of letting things come. God calls us to vigilance, to being active, to pursuing the image of Jesus Christ in ourselves and in our families. We cannot let up in this critical battle to reflect God's glory in ourselves and in our families. For all of us, no matter where we are in life and in our walk, what is ahead is the last warning of this very passage. Be on guard and do not be faithless because God is worthy of our life 
and our service. And he has such great plans for his image being reflected in us, in all our relationships, and in the world around us. So let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, there is, there is no way to adequately, adequately describe the greatness of your glory. And therefore, there's no way to adequately describe your intention of your glory being seen in our relationships. And so, Lord, my prayer this morning is that beyond any human word, that your word about the one God, the God who creates, the God who entered into a covenant relationship with us through Jesus Christ, the God who redeems, the God who transforms, the God who sanctifies, the God who saves, that this word would be heard and would take root. Lord, we pray for your work among us. Lord, I pray for those for whom these words were like picking at a scab or ripping open a wound. May the balm of redemption, of forgiveness, of the fact that there's no condemnation in Jesus Christ. May that soothe these wounds that we have brought. And Lord, for each one of us, whether in marriage or approaching marriage or living a life of singleness, may each one of us go from here with a deeper understanding and not just understanding but heart conviction of who you are and how you are the one who is worthy and how you are the one who can bring us not just ultimate satisfaction but immeasurable joy in our circumstance. And so, Lord, may we live in your holiness and to reflect your glory and to proclaim your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.